Good evening. Are we broadcasting? Yes? No? Yes, there we go. I need some volunteers to help with handouts, please. I need to get these handouts all around. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to this for some time since uh, Barry contacted me and, and asked me to come. I was excited about coming and spending a little bit of time with Barry. But I come to town and he leaves. So I'm not exactly sure how I'm supposed to take that. But that's okay. Greta and the boys is really who we wanted to see anyway. And, and we'll just forget about him. But uh, Barry is actually at my home congregation where I grew up tonight speaking at Petersville. That's where my dad still attends. And uh, so I know he'll be a blessing to them there. And hopefully we'll, we'll enjoy our time together here tonight. We love Barry and Greta. We love their family. And uh, cherish the little bit of time that we got to be together in a previous place. And I know they're a blessing to you. And I know this congregation, and I know that you're a blessing to them as well. So thank you for loving on them and taking care of them like you do. You've probably heard the story about the preacher, the lawyer, and the doctor that went deer hunting one morning, early one Saturday morning. And they were walking to the spot where they were going to divide up and each go to their individual deer stands. As they were walking, before they broke up, a big trophy buck walked right in front of them. All three of them just instinctively pulled their guns up, pow, shot, and the deer went down dead. They went over. There was only one bullet wound on the deer. So you know what that means. Two of them missed, but who got the shot and who missed? So the three of them debate and they discuss and they deliberate. And finally the doctor says, well, you know, the coroner is a friend of mine. And he lives pretty close to here. Why don't we get in my truck? We'll put the deer in the back of the truck. We'll go over to the coroner's house. We'll get him to examine the deer and he can tell us who fired the shot and who gets the deer. So they load the deer up. They take the deer over to the coroner's house. He comes out. He examines the deer and he says, the preacher. Well, the doctor and the lawyer are like, are you sure? Are you? He said, yes, I'm sure. How can you be sure? And the coroner said, look, we all agree that there was only one bullet wound, right? They said, yes. And the coroner said, the bullet went in one ear and out the other. It's the preacher. <laughs> if you didn't get that, think about it on the way home. You'll laugh, okay? <laughs> well, I, I hope that our time tonight doesn't go in one ear and out the other. Because what we have to talk about is really, really important. And it is the subject of worship. On any Lord's Day, all around the world, millions upon millions of individuals gather to worship. And they gather in all different types of settings and circumstances. Some in urban areas and some in churches in the middle of nowhere. Some in multi-million dollar facilities and some in small churches that are about to fall apart. 
I know that this is a mission-minded church. And I know that for years you've supported great works around the world. And so many of you have had the experience of worshiping with Christians in other places around the world, and you've got great memories of what those settings were like. I think about where our family has been privileged to go. And I think about huts on the side of the beach by the ocean, so close that you had to almost shout to be heard over the waves. Think about rented hotel rooms and homes and wide open spaces. And even one time, we had sort of a worship service in the corner of a bar. They were closed, but we got them to open for the worship service. You think about all those situations. There's places where people gather on Sunday mornings and the services are very structured and very kind of quiet and contemplative. And other worship services are loose and louder and more boisterous. In Samoa in the South Pacific, the church in town has a church dog. His name is Tui. And they kept the doors, the front door and the side doors open for ventilation because it was so hot over there. And Tui would come down the middle aisle about halfway through every service and he would come and he would lay underneath the Lord's table and he would go to sleep. If that wasn't bad enough, Tui had nightmares in his sleep. And so he would yelp and kind of moan. And they just went right on because they were accustomed to it. Some people worship and they sing traditional songs. And some more contemporary and some a mix of both. A lot of settings. A lot of circumstances. And many people will go to those settings and they'll have meaningful, substantive, tangible events. And others will walk away feeling absolutely nothing. Empty, unfulfilled. They may even say, well, that was boring. They don't know why. They went through all the effort to assemble with the saints, to worship with the people of God, and to worship God, but they failed. Why? Well, the reason isn't any of the things that we just listed. Because it doesn't matter about the setting. And it doesn't matter about the size, be it large or be it small. That is not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. We're going to read in verses 8 and 9. Revelation 22 verses 8 and 9. I, John and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and your brethren the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. And then he says, Worship God. Worship of God is what we were created for. Worship of God is our final destiny. And so because of that, the Bible has much to say about worship. But it 
may not all be exactly like we think. You know, as important as this subject is, the truth is, in the New Testament epistles, there's not that much instruction about the act of corporate worship. Nothing explicit. Now, certainly there were gatherings. We know that. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. They were in the temple and house to house daily. The, the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 10.25, Do not forsake assembling yourself with the saints as some do. In, in 1 Corinthians 14.23, talk, it talks about the whole church assembling together. That's not much. And even when it's discussed, there's nothing explicitly stated about worship. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word, the most common word for worship. And in the Greek Old Testament, that word occurs 171 times. That's a lot. Old Testament, 171 times, that word for worship. When you come over to the New Testament Greek... The same word is found in the New Testament. In fact, it's found 26 times in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 26 times that word, proskuneo, you probably know that word, is found in the Gospels. And each time, it's in the context of someone worshiping Jesus. He's physically there, and they're worshiping Him. It's found four times in the book of Acts. The context there really is more non-God worship in the new age, the new covenant. Then you jump over to the book of Revelation. That word is found 21 times in the book of Revelation. And it's in reference there to worship of God in heaven. So we've got heavy emphasis in the Gospels, and we've got heavy emphasis in the book of Revelation. There's just not much in between. Paul only uses it one time. 1 Corinthians. Peter, James, John and his epistles, they don't use it at all. Paul one time. Now why is that? What's going on? That the most prominent word for worship in the Old Testament is scarce in the New Testament. Could it be, could it be that the clue is found and Jesus' teachings and attitude about the subject. Now John chapter 4 is the text that was assigned to me by Barry. And that's the text that we're going to go to in just a moment. And because that text is important, because that's the majority of what Jesus talks about worship. That's the main place that we have instructions there about worship. But before we get to that text... I want us to think about something in Jesus' life. I want us to think about His attitude toward the temple. Now, Jesus was an observant Jew, no doubt. He, he kept the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. He did what He was supposed to do. But when it came to the temple, the place of Jewish worship, all the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the things that took place, the physical acts. Jesus had a different attitude about that place than the religious leaders of His day. Very different. One example is in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus cleanses the temple of the money changers. You remember that? 
Now why did he do that? Remember what he said? My house shall be a house of sacrifice. My house shall be a house of worship. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. And so it's almost as if Jesus is taking the spotlight off of the outward expressions and shining the spotlight on the one thing that makes the communion, the relationship with God in that time, prayer. And by the way, Jesus' attitude about the temple is what got Him killed. Look at Mark 14. Mark 15, they killed him because of it. And he wasn't the only one. Who else did they kill because of his attitude about the temple? It was Stephen. First Christian martyr, Acts 6. Same thing. And so that is significant. That is important. Because we want to know what's going on here. Alright, so that sets the context. So now let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, this is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. They're having a conversation. We're going to jump in mid-conversation in verse 19. John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Now, note, she's talking about physical places of worship. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What Jesus seems to be doing is taking the last part of proskuneo and and, uh, disassociating location with it and stripping away outward things and shining the spotlight somewhere else. Now, is it important what we do in worship? Yes. All right. I know know it's Wednesday night and y'all are tired. But if I've already lost you, I'm going to get you back, okay? Now, okay? now, this is yes and this is no. You got it? Is it important what we do in worship? Yes, absolutely. That's not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. That's settled, so we set that aside. But what Jesus is trying to do here is to make it crystal clear what makes worship, worship. And He says what makes worship, worship happens in spirit And in truth, can we do all the right things and just go through the motions? Can we do all the right things all the right ways and still miss out? Yes. 
That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, when He said, these people honor Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. And their worship is in vain. Folks, when our heart is not in it, when our heart is far from God, our worship is vain, it is empty, it is unfulfilling. So worship doesn't need a building. Doesn't need a set prescribed list of songs. Worship needs a risen Savior, the presence of God, and our heart to be all in. Because the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart when it comes to worship. Now, to help us kind of flesh this out a little bit more, I want us to look for a few minutes that we have left at an Old Testament passage. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we spend the rest of our time. I know that we're not under the Mosaic Law. Certainly we're under a new and better covenant. But the focus of the Old Testament is the same as the focus of the New Testament. People getting in relationship with God and staying in relationship with God. And so if we look at Isaiah's experience here, his worship experience, pretty rare passage, what happens? We're going to be able to get some insight that should help us to understand what true worship really is all about. So let's start reading in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. So here's the first thing. True worship is about looking up. Looking up in awe and reverence. Do you sense the awe and reverence of Isaiah there? If you you had to visualize his face in that moment, what do you think his face looked like? I can see his eyes about to bug out of his head. His mouth is open. He cannot believe, he cannot comprehend what he is seeing. There's two aspects of God's personality, God's being, that seem at first contradictory of each other. One is God's transcendence, and the other is God's eminence. God's transcendence, He is high and holy, He is lifted up, He is above anything that is natural, earthly, or finite. But then we have God's eminence. God's eminence is that He is uniquely engaged with all of His creation. That that He stoops to be involved with us and our situations. And the problem that we have is that in modern day theology, we've emphasized one over the other. And because we've emphasized one, we've de-emphasized the other. We've emphasized the eminence of God. That God is our friend and, and he's, he, we need a personal relationship with Him. And we sing songs like, He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I am His own. But that's true. 
And it's important that we know that. But we cannot emphasize that to the point that we de-emphasize the transcendence of God. He is holy. He is high and lifted up. He's marvelous. He's great. I'm an odd fellow. You don't know me, but I'm weird, I'm telling you. I've got weird ticks. I've got weird things. Y'all ought to put my wife on your prayer list. I'm just telling you, it's bad. And one of my weird things that I like to do is that I like to go out on my deck at night when the sky is clear and count planes flying over. Now, isn't that a weird habit to have? I had some pine trees cut just so that I could have a better view of my backyard to see the sky. Well, they need to be cut anyway, but it sure did help my view. In between watching for those planes, those little lights coming over. Sometimes I just sit up there. I just look at that night sky. You ever do that? And I think about... Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. Not the whole verse. Just the end of the verse. And it's almost like a throwaway line. And He made the stars too. Wow. He is high and lifted up. And Isaiah sees that. He sees His holiness. He sees His glory. He sees His preeminence. He sees His supremacy in this moment. He is absolute God. Worship requires reverence. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not a sugar daddy. He's not our friend to just call on whenever we need Him and ignore the rest of the time. He is holy. He is majesty. He is high. He is powerful. He is absolute love. He is absolute absolute mercy. He is absolute grace. He is everything. And He is worthy of our worship. All the praise that we should give Him. Now, when we assemble for corporate worship, do we get there? Is that the mindset that we have when we walk in? Let's be honest. Many times it's not. See, there's two reasons we come together. We come together to worship, but we also come together, according to Scripture, to encourage each other. And so like tonight, when people are coming in and you're saying hello and you're greeting people, how's your week going? All that is great and wonderful. But what that does is that that draws our attention and our thinking horizontal. And that's fine, except that at some point during worship, we've got to reorient that. It's got to be vertical. Now that may be the opening prayer, that may be the opening song, that may be when a scripture is read, or certainly when we assemble around the table for the Lord's Supper, but at some moment, something's got to take place where we reorient our thinking. And we're looking up. We're looking up to how great He is. And that's so very, very important. Now when Isaiah does that, notice... What happens next? Go back to the text this time in verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. True worship is about owning 
up. Owning up to who we are and to who we aren't. When Isaiah sees holy God, it hits him right between the eyes. It's his wake-up call that he is unworthy. Why, why were tax collectors and prostitutes and all the people that were in the list of sinners in the time of Jesus, why were they coming to the kingdom of God in droves and the self-righteous religious people weren't? It's because they were willing to own up to their stuff. You know, we're supposed to be submitting our life to Christ. You know the hardest part about submitting? Is admitting. You gotta admit that we've all got junk and we've all got junk. Some people do a better job of hiding their junk and they keep it in the dark. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners in their day, their junk was already on display. And so, hey, they heard the message of Jesus and they said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to own up. And the others were not willing to do that. When we ignore God's perfection, we can convince ourselves that we're really not that bad off. Especially when we compare ourselves to other people. And when we do that, let's be honest. We pick the runts of the litter to make that comparison. Sociologists have studied America's fascination with reality television. You know one of the things they found out? We are drawn to reality television because it makes us feel better about ourselves. You don't believe me? Watch an episode of Dr. Phil. And you'll come away thinking, you know what, my family's got problems, but we're not as bad as those folks. And when we do that, we, we, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong people. Folks, Isaiah was no spiritual slouch. He was a guy who had a level of dedication and holiness that I dare say few of us in here could attain to. But one glimpse, one glimpse of God. And he said, woe is me. Remember in Luke 5, when Peter had fished all night and caught nothing, Jesus comes up and he says, you need to go back out and put your nets on the other side. Peter didn't want to do it. You know Peter. You can imagine what Peter was thinking. He wasn't really enthused about this. After all, Peter's the fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter. Peter had to be thinking, I don't come down to the woodshed and tell you what to do. You're coming here and telling me what to do. I fished all night. I've been a fisherman all my life. My father was a fisherman. My grandfather was a fisherman. I know this lake. I know everything. But they did it. And you remember what happened? They caught so many fish that the nets were bursting and they were trying to get it over into the boat and the boat began to sink. And in that moment, Peter had his aha moment. He realized that Jesus was not a man, but He was the Messiah. And Peter said to him, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When we recognize, when we look up to God, we can own up to who we are and to who we aren't. And that we are unworthy on our own. And sometimes when we're in worship, we have the opportunities 
to really begin to focus on that and to think about that and to see who we really are. Isaiah realized three things from verse 5. He realized that he was lost. Woe is me. He realized that he was a sinner. He had unclean lips. And he realized that he was just like everybody else. I'm around people with unclean lips. Isaiah and Peter both confessed, owned up to who they were. The, The word confess in the original just means to say the same thing. And so when we confess, we say the same thing as God. We say, I recognize, Isaiah 59, 2, that my iniquities, my sins have separated me from God and that I am lost and helpless and hopeless on my own. There's no way I can fix it. I cannot do anything about it. Now, if that were the end, that would be terrible. But that's not the end. Because this continues. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my lip with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. You see, true worship is also about looking back. Worship is not something we can do on our own. We, we must have God present. We must have His grace present. When, when Isaiah admits his sinfulness, the angel comes and does something for him that's really akin to what Christ has done and continues to do for us. 1 John 1.19, if we are faithful and confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Towards the end of His ministry, Jesus does a selfless act for His followers. He washes their feet. Takes the role the lowest servant. You remember when He got to Peter, what Peter said, Not washing me, Lord. Jesus said, If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Peter said, Not only my feet, but my head and my hands also. In that moment... What Peter understood was what we must understand, that if Christ does not wash us, then we have no part of Him. None. See, we're saved not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but we're saved by grace. Now, must we do things to receive that gift? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have to believe the message. We have to express a desire to change. We have to confess Him as Lord and be buried in baptism. But none of those are acts of merit. None of those earn us the salvation that we're given. It's a gift. It's a free gift that's given. We can only, we can only receive it. And so looking up and owning up and looking back, those are things we do in worship. We, we look up when we sing songs about God and how great He is. We own up when we bow in prayer and we confess that we are sinners and that we need forgiveness from God. We, we look back when we assemble around the table and we remember that great sacrifice of Christ at Calvary. We also look back when we examine ourselves. 
And when we examine ourselves, and if we are honest with ourselves in that moment, we'll see ourselves for who we really are. And we will cry out, Woe is me, for I am unclean. But that's not the end. Because the fourth and final point here is that true worship is about going forth. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Worship is not just about coming together, corporate worship, and singing a few songs, and eating the Lord's Supper, and some prayers, and hearing an amazing message from Barry. It's more than that. It's so much more than that. It, it's, it is a lifestyle that goes forth with us from the place that we gather in, into a world that needs us, into a world that is starving and dying and that needs us to love and to serve and to teach and to model and to be everything that Christ calls us to be. I, I mentioned reality television earlier. Anybody ever watch the show Four Weddings? Okay, thank you a couple of people for owning up to that. All right. Uh, I know you're probably thinking, why is a guy saying that he watches that show? Look, house full of women, wife and two daughters. You heard the introduction. I, trust me, I've never watched it on my own. That's not my choice, but I have watched it because of them. And if you know the premise, there's four ladies that are having a wedding, and they each go to each other's wedding, and they judge each other, and they give themselves a score, and at the end, somebody wins a prize. And it's, the typical setup is, this is Susie, and she wants an island-themed wedding, and her budget is $50,000. And I think, who in the world has that kind of money to spend on a wedding? What kind of job do you have? You ever been to a wedding that's over the top? You ever been to a wedding that's plain and simple? You know, it's wedding season, and we'll go to some that are pretty elaborate. We'll go to some that are pretty basic, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much food they've got, or how many people are there, or how over the top the decorations are, because none of that determines whether or not the marriage will last, because the ceremony is not the marriage. Now, whether or not the marriage lasts is how those two individuals who took very public vows live those vows out in both public and private as time goes on. And so, it is with worship. See, when we come together and we sing and we pray and we do all of the things that we must do in worship... It's important and that is necessary. But real worship begins when we leave this place. That's when the worship service begins. Because if we come in and we do all of that and it has no effect on us and it does not change how we think and how we feel and how we act and how we interact with other people and it does not change our relationship with the Creator and it does not motivate us to love Him more and to serve Him and others more, 
then we've missed out. We've missed out on the very purpose that we come together. I think our Catholic friends may have something right. At the end of Mass, the priest blesses them and sends them out to live out the message that they have just heard. Andy Harrington tells a story about taking a group of college students to a homeless shelter in Vancouver, British Columbia. The most dangerous zip code in North America. It's a place where addicts go to die. They give out free needles there. They have lots of social services and so drug addicts know they can go there and live their lives out and be taken care of. So Andy takes a group of college students into this homeless shelter one evening to help serve a meal. And as the kids are helping serve the meal, the guy who runs the place and invited him walks over to him and says, by the way, you got the, the message here in a minute. Andy thought, what am I going to do? What message am I going to give to, to these people? And so he watched a guy, drug addict, shaking from withdrawals, going through the line. Got his plate of food. He had his fork. He goes over and he, and he sits down and, and he's, he's, trying, he's trying to get a little bit of beans on his fork and his hand is shaking so bad that he tips his plate and he dumps his food all over his shirt. And he just hangs his head down, defeated. Unprompted, one of the young ladies in Andy's group goes behind the counter, gets a towel, wets it, comes out, and gets on her hands and knees in front of him, begins to clean up his shirt. And softly she says to him, It's okay. Things are going to be all right. Don't worry. She cleans off of his shirt and then she, she takes the plate and cleans the beans out of the floor and she says, now you, you sit right here, you wait and, and I'll be right back. She throws that away, goes behind the counter, washes her hands, gets him a new plate, brings in the plate, hands him the fork and then she says, I'll hold the plate and you eat. And Andy said in that moment it hit him what he would speak about. Jesus is the hand that steadies the plate for all of us. See, when we come together in worship, we bring our broken and battered lives. We, we come hungry. We come starving. We come hurting. Life leaves marks on us. And we come. And if we worship in spirit and truth, we are nourished. We are rejuvenated. We are recharged and energized. And we leave here to go back out into a broken and battered world to be for other people what Jesus has been for us. The hand that steadies the plate. That's what worship is all about. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your blessings. We thank You, Father, that You allow us the privilege and the honor of worshiping You. And Father, we ask for forgiveness for times when we, we do it in a way that doesn't impact us and change us like You want it to. And Father, we, we pray that You will help us in the future 
to be more meaningful and more intentional in our worship. Help us, Father, that we'll, that we'll look up, that we'll own up, that we'll look back, and that from worship we'll go out to serve. Thank You, Father, for Jesus, for that amazing sacrifice. Thank You for all the blessings that are found only in You. And it's in our Savior's dear name that we pray. Amen.